Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. Jesus replied, the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem to the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect and guard you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The kids are invited to Kids Church this morning. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. It's the beginning of the gospel reading in this journey of Luke that we have going this morning. Now, um, Haley read from the Luke in which we have as a church. Kim, can you hold up yours since you're close to the front? There's, there's copies of Luke if you'd like to journey along with us in the entryway to take and sort of read and keep on this way. Because The Gospels have these sort of four portraits of who Jesus are for us. They make up these four ways of sort of looking at Christ. What we try to do from the beginning of the new year all the way to Easter is focus on sort of one portrait of who Jesus is so we can get to know that portrait. So we've been walking through Luke so far this season. Um, and what we've done is sort of looked past this scene. I said um, at the twice, this is the second part of two different sermons. First, it's the second part of the baptism sermon. So the first Sunday of the new year, pretty much the church, um, the larger church sort of has this way of sort of focusing on the baptism of Jesus after his birth in the Christmas time. And in that scene, Jesus hears that this is my son whom I love. There's this disclosure of divine identity in that. So the second part of that, it's also, in a weird way, a second part of the Transfiguration Sermon, um, in which, again, Jesus hears from a divine voice as he's up on the mountain of the Transfiguration, this is whom my son and whom I love. Listen to him, as he's surrounded with two disciples there. Now, the interesting part about Scripture, and there's a graphic I use for this sometimes, is no matter where you're reading, you're always reading five other places. Um, so, like, if you enter into one scene, it throws back to several other scenes and several other things. For instance, Jesus goes out to the Jordan to get baptized. 
you could go look up more about the Jordan in, in the Bible and the role that that plays historically with Israel. Or Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration is there with Moses and Elijah. So then the scripture, in a modern way of saying it, is incredibly hyperlinked. You're never just reading one place, but you're reading in seven places at the same time. Point being is that this sermon is a second part of both those disclosures of divine identity after the one, the transfiguration. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Jesus at the end of chapter 9 in Luke says, or it says of Jesus in the end of chapter 9 in Luke, he resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. That after that second disclosure, he goes with the power of the Spirit into the place in which he will face um, his human sort of uh, antagonism and receive, which is all of us, um, is sort of the way the church has, has sort of taken that, is when the divine light comes into the world, that which is goodness and that transcends all things. Most of us want to snuff it out. Um, and so Jesus then goes towards Jerusalem to confront that, resolutely sets his face towards it in the words of Luke, which is similar to what we're seeing here, is, is in the baptism scene when Jesus heard that voice, there's a long genealogy in between that scene and where we are today, but what it says immediately after that is there too, Jesus is invited into struggle, into conflict. After hearing, this is my son whom I love, in the baptism scene in chapter 3, I believe, in the ge genealogy, it picks up right here. Jesus, full of the Spirit, left the Jordan and went uh, by the Spirit into the wilderness. There's this way in which hearing who Christ is, as Jesus hears from the Father that this is my Son whom I love, instantly he's brought into places of conflict and struggle after that. So today is the first Sunday of Lent, as Emily pointed out, and there's a temptation. It's this Sunday, um, there's three years to the church calendar prescribed text, um, which is this sort of ecumenical... Um, Catholics, Protestants, all sorts of groups use it. There's three years to it. But every year, the first Sunday of Lent is Temptation Sunday. And every preacher is tempted to say, Jesus' temptations in the wilderness are like you giving up chocolate. Jesus' temptations in the wilderness are near to your ability to try and work out more. Um, th there's this way in which this is not true, obviously, as you look at it. Um, um, but, and, and here's the but to that, because I'm one who wants to lean very hard into that that's not true. These temptations are quite different. And what's at stake in these temptations is quite different as well. But as I go through the sermon, and to make it clear at the front, is um, to hear in your baptism, to hear in your church service, you're forgiven. You belong to God. God has brought you into this place and is leading you. We, we end our service not with a scattering, which is what some people say, which I think is unwise, but ascending. Go out, sent. We too will contend and struggle with reality. I don't know what your struggle with chocolate is. Um, but it may be bigger than I think it is. I mean, that, that, it's, 
You know, it's not like that temptation, largely because of what's at stake in this. But we go forward as a people of struggle as well, and that's been one of the things I've been trying to say as we look at these glorification scenes, the baptism, the transfiguration, or even the first half of Luke's gospel, which is him predominantly wandering the countryside, having fun with his friends, healing people, um, and, and bringing them into this kingdom he's announcing, um, that there's a turn in each of these three similar Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that after the confession of who he is, you are the Christ, which Peter said last week, um, there's this way in which the whole Gospel then turns to this place of struggle and going towards where he dies. And that's what we mark in the Lent season, as much as we mark our own penitence, our own transformation, our own this. We also mark this way in which we walk towards the cross with Jesus. Not as Jesus, But from a distance, we observe what he goes through on that path as conflict rears its head again in his life. And so we walk um, and hear that story as we too sort of walk our own hopes of of cleaning ourselves to some degree. That this Lent season, the church is is giving up chocolate, is sort of um, this way of saying this has become sort of a crutch in my life. I like to say that you can't give up sin for Lent um, because that's something you should go without all the time. Um, But it's these little things that we can take out that can open up space in our lives, in our souls, and in our stomachs for God to then speak into us if but we turn, if that makes sense. Is I really want what I have pulled out, which is often it's a fast is the term we use for Lent. Some people add things. Um, But... Is, is what I've pulled out, then I can turn and offer that as prayer to speak into the emptiness that that created. So we walk this path. This is the first Sunday in that. We started on Ash Wednesdays. Oh, one of the reasons why I, I say you can't give up sin, although it might be a good time to start purging yourself from sin because 40 days makes a habit, but one of the reasons I can't is because if you notice from Ash Wednesday till Easter is 46 days. Because the church in its wisdom has declared that all Sundays are a feast day in which we come and we're centered on this table in which Christ meets us, that it's not a fast day. So many people who are giving up stuff will partake of some of it on Sunday. Point is, if it's sin, you can't take a feast day. I've decided to give up that which is abusing my soul, but I've decided on Sundays I shall celebrate and fill my heart with it. So much so that that's my path of purging myself. Um, Again, if you're giving up a sin, great. Don't have a feast day. Um, And two, use it as a pattern to free yourself further from that. Um, uh, I've I've done that in my past too, um, using it as a way to sort of start that journey. Um, but Christ here enters into the conflict. I wanted to to revisit this quote I wrote a couple Sundays ago because I. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. I've shared it with several other pastors, and they're like, send that to me, which, of course, like all people, I forgot. So note to self, send this to the pastors who asked. But there's this way in which I think what Pope Benedict is saying is here about opening up our way to the invisible, not just the scene, what we see, has a lot to do with many of the scenes we hear in the gospel, and in particular, I think this one, because if it's all that we see, Christ might be wrong. In, in the sense of Satan's offering this, but he's tempted unlike us by good things. He's not tempted 
to, to sort of abuse or to distort his self or body. He's tempted more along his call, but all these things are things in which Christ fulfills. He does feed 5,000. He does, um, uh, uh, what's the second one? He is going to inherit all the kingdoms of the earth. Um, he is going to um, uh, put himself on the cross and Christ will raise him up. Um, but in further Christian belief means opting for the view that what cannot be seen is more real than what can be seen. It is a vowel of the primacy of the invisible as the truly real which upholds us and hence enables us to face the visible with calm composure. Knowing that we are responsible before the invisible as the truly real um, which upholds us and hence enables us to face the visible with calm and charge, knowing that we are responsible to the visible as the true ground of all things. There's a repeat in there. But knowing that we're responsible to the invisible of the true ground of all things. There's this way in which we are called to see the invisible in this scene as the truly real, that it opens up space for us. Before we make it too far, this is um, the quote on the back of the bulletin, which I think talks about how we are drawn into our own struggles. Whatever images or concepts, Scripture agrees with the experience that there is in us and among us strong opposition to love, health, wholeness, and peace. If you've ever thought about why the world is the way it is, like, it would be easy, you think, for humanity to say, you know what, tomorrow we're all going to wake up and choose love, health, wholeness, and peace. It's one of the places that I think the scripture wisely tells us the truth is that it's not a simple matter of choosing. You don't just wake up and now you can all of a sudden embody these things. Being committed to the way of God in the world does not exempt one from struggle. In fact, it is those who are most engaged in the way of God who seem to experience most intensely the opposition of evil. If Jesus struggled, who is exempt? Nor did the presence of the Holy Spirit mean absence of temptation. So this way in which we like to say is that you become a Christian and all those things will disappear. It's not true. Um, and in almost sense, you become a Christian and those things can be heightened in some sense because you're aware of all the hooks in which this sort of destruction and slavery has within you. But nor did the presence of the Holy Spirit mean the absence of temptation. Rather, the Spirit was the available power of God in the contest. Jesus, full of the Spirit, is led out into the wilderness. And that's where this challenge takes place. And this is where Christ is driven. And so one of the things that I've been thinking of quite a bit lately, it came up in an interview with um, a thinker, a post-political thinker, but he was talking about the challenges the West face today. And one of the things he mentioned is that Christianity is going to have to reinvigorate itself if it's going to help the West or some of the conflict it's facing. But Christianity has sort of subsumed itself to a Christianity of care. Um, and in the way in which the world has come of age in Christianity, care is good. Um, when the world wants to call Christians out, they always go back to care. Um, you, I don't know if you've ever seen that. Incidentally, uh, last weekend there was uh, He Gets Us commercial during the Super Bowl, uh, which is this ad campaign. Uh, a billionaire thought Jesus needed PR help, um, which is actually what he said, I believe. And in America, that might be true, regardless of which... Um, 
that's the way we think, distorted souls that we are. Um, but there were many people afterwards, non-Christians, who were like, I doubt Jesus would spend all his money on a Super Bowl commercial. He'd give it all to the poor or something like that, which is, in one sense, probably true at such so many removed contexts that you have to jump through to even get to the point of running the commercial. But another sense of like, that's the exact way we're always called out. You guys are supposed to be loving. Supposed, Jesus would spend all of his money giving it to the poor, on a, not on a Super Bowl commercial. And then there's a sense in which, would you like to know him? Would you like to pray and get to know this one who invites us into conflict and struggle? Would you like to get to know this one who might also question the edifices of all the other Super Bowl commercials that aim to get you to buy something and to make your life miserable? Would you like to have Jesus come and live within you and bring you into the conflict that comes within reality in which we are drawn more and more into his way and path? And so that thinker said, you know, we have this Christianity of care in the West, and it's quite popular for people to sort of use against Christians to say, you guys are supposed to care more. And it's like, you don't know who we are. Um, You know one story. Um, And yet he said, it might be time for Christianity to re-embrace a Christianity of struggle, of this way of sort of struggling for material reality again. And, and Emily did that well, I think, um, in the intro this Sunday. It's the way in which we have these ways of numbing our souls and these ways of choosing this easy opt-out. But what if it is the path that Christ is inviting us into? Not just care, but of struggle. And I was thinking about this in, in the context of sort of the lives of the saints. Is The lives of the saints, as much as they often embody care, there is a feistiness and struggle and pushing within them that I think we fail to hold up as a model in the church today as well as we should. Just care and give it all away. But to bring your soul and your body into the struggle of limits, of creatureliness, of being in this way, is to follow Jesus into the wilderness, I think. And to find in that that we are contending with something much darker than we thought. For instance, it could have been, if you hated the He Gets Us commercial, you could have said that this is one of the temptations that Jesus faces and he says no to in getting fame but that Christ calls us into more. A deeper struggle than fixing his PR through Super Bowl commercials, but churches live in the reality of his broken body for the world. You find a non-Christian making that point, give me a call, because that would be quite amazing. Um, But that's the struggle in which we're invited into through this story and many others, I would say. Particularly going back to last week, pick up your cross daily, and follow me, which is what Jesus called Peter into and the disciples into. Pick up your cross daily. It'd be nice if it was a one-time thing. Pick up your cross and you're done. But it's the dailiness of picking up that thing, that cross, and walking that path that we're invited into the struggle and in bringing to life in some ways. So Jesus was led out into the wilderness where he was for 40 days and 40 nights tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was very hungry. 
couple observations here real quick. The wilderness um, in ancient Near East is this place near the sea, which uh, not a good thing. This is not, um, what is the, under the sea, the Jamaican crab. Um, yes, Little Mermaid. Um, uh, this is not that type of sea. The sea is this place of chaos and destruction, and the sea represents this nearness to it. Jesus is brought out to this place not on a camping trip, but he's brought out to the wilderness to contend with the forces of things um, that represent darkness in a lot of ways. And while we're here, the 40 days, as, as Emily said, mirrors um, for us in Lent 40 days, but also 40 days um, that, 40 years that Israel is in the wilderness, 40 days that Moses is on the mountain, 40 days for Elijah. There's all these 40 sort of, um, 40 days that Noah's in the ark that come through scripture. 40 is this figurative number to say that Jesus is figuratively reliving all of these 40 stories in some ways. More than that, though, is that Jesus, in the previous passage, right before this starts, um, it says that the genealogy ends with, if you read the genealogy, people skip over it. Um, <laughs> it's a joke in there somewhere. Um, anyways, the son of Adam, the son of God, is the way the genealogy ends as well. And so there's this way in which Jesus is reliving the story of Israel's wilderness journey, which is a very real thing that these, he's reliving that in the ways in which they faced the same temptations. They wanted bread. They wanted um, the power the, to be able to live into their reality next. And they wanted to be saved out of this in simple ways. These are the temptations they face. And, and they give in each time. Whereas Jesus, um, the word for this in theological lingual is recapitulates. Relives that story but without sinning. So too with Adam. Adam in the garden, most of us are familiar with that scene, eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, and then is cast out away from the tree of life. Um, Jesus, in his own way into this wilderness, recapitulates that story as Luke is starting setting it up, as one who doesn't give into that temptation. And it is in this way, this withstanding that Christ's recapitulation is also our repair. It is the repair of our souls as he does this. So when the early church talked about how Christ recapitulates all these stories, they meant that then that, that frees and opens options for us that were not open before. Sets a new path available to humanity, not because humanity got wiser, but because God in his incarnate self lived these stories and infused a new power and life into it. Often we'll call that the spirit. We're as tempted by the devil, this great sort of hater of being. Often you'll see this, or at times you'll see this translated as slanderer. This one who slanders against what God who has made and creates. It's more of a literal translation of the etymology of devil um, here. And it was in... Um, one of the things I was reading this week, I can't remember, but it was Jonathan was singing the White as Snow song, um, uh, a sacrifice is our, our broken and contrite heart, is the devil is one who stands in the way of all sacrifice. Part of what happens with this thing that stands firmly with non-being over being, the denier of all existence, the hater, all these things, the slanderer, is there is no need for sacrifice for him. 
He's unable to pray. The sacrifices of our God are a broken and contrite heart. It's incidentally that the church has often said that pride is one of the elements of the devil and one of our first sins. I don't need to admit that that struggle with is within me. And so Jesus, at the end of his time in the wilderness, is hungry, as you would be. Um, and the devil comes to him in the first temptation. Um, should be up there. And said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written that men shall not live on bread alone. So this is an interesting temptation. First, um, the devil, all of these lead with, if you are the son of God. As I said, as we go forth into our own Christianities of struggle, I think the temptation, will mirror Jesus is in this way often, is that if you belong to that one, perform these works. If you belong to that one, make this all better. Or if you belong to that one, can you withstand the peer pressure, the temptations and trials that we are going to continually throw at you? The slander, the devil, starts with this question of identity. If you are the one who heard the voice from heaven, if you are the one who washed in the waters and now belongs to God, it's the way the temptation often comes. Tell these stones to become bread. Now often the church has, has looked at this as Jesus' opportunity to serve himself, to solve his own hunger. I think that there's a way in which the temptations that we face can often be a temptation to serve ourselves as well. But there's another way I think this temptation shows up, particularly in the modern world, in a world come of age of Christianity, is can you make bread to feed everyone else? Can you fulfill that need in our longing? The one thing I wanted to say here is, uh, before we move into that real quick, is that I was talking to Kelly about this last night. This is where genie, Jesus, of all places, is sort of asked to act like a genie. So much of what Jesus does and how he lives his life is not, it's in accordance with the way reality works. I think the temptations are sort of this defense of our creatureliness. Stones don't become rocks. Surely God could have turned stones into God, rock, rocks into bread, I mean. But the point being is that I think Jesus multiplies bread in the scene. He doesn't turn stones into rocks. The parables, while often graduated in their form, that the, the mustard seed becomes a decently sized tree, it doesn't become a redwood. That, that so much of what Jesus seems to do in his ministry is modeled in sort of the nature and the way of which things are. Jesus turns water into wine, and the early church was always fond to say, we turn water into wine. He does it without the steps that we use. But nobody turns bread or stones into bread. And it's not because God couldn't, but there's this way in which G Satan's first temptation is genie me. Like, do this miraculous thing that makes no sense in this way. Um, and there's an interesting temptation in that. But I wanted to talk about the temptation to bread one last time. This is from uh, an interview about the Brothers Karamazov. One of the things, well, I'll read the scene first. 
Um, and this is about it. In the chaos of what's especially noteworthy to pursue the religious theme about the deifiers of humanity is that they justify their action in accordance with Christian principles of compassion and charity. That is, that these new defenders of humanity that aren't Christian, that care about all these things, will often justify themselves according to Christian principles. This is something Dostoevsky understood. In the Brothers Karamazovs, he's got this character, the Grand Inquisitor. So Jesus come back, comes back to the world. The Grand Inquisitor has him arrested and says, I'm going to burn you at the stake tomorrow. Why? After 90 years, he pours out his heart to Jesus and says to him and accuses him of loving only the few strong beings who can follow him out of their own free choice and love, but not caring for the mass of humanity are too weak and childness to follow him. In other words, the Grand Inquisitor says to Jesus, you are insufficiently compassionate. That's the kind of anti-Christianity that turns Christianity on its head. To make sense of this within the, the passage I just read, and this is actually what the Grand Inquisitor says to Jesus, is that you should have turned bread or stones into bread because you could have fed everyone and the masses would have come towards you. If you really cared about humanity, he's, he goes through all three temptations, you would have taken that one because it would have been for all people. But instead, you only cared about the people who want to enter into this struggle, into this way of being. Um, and what this thinker is saying, this is Jacob Holland, who's not a Christian, but he's saying is that essentially what the modern world would say to Jesus in not doing this is that you are insufficiently compassionate. So going back, we don't hear from Christ. It is not written that man does not live on bread alone, or it is written that man does not live on bread alone. Do we, the Grand Inquisitor does not believe that man doesn't live on bread alone. The rest of that quote, which is conceived in Matthew, or presented in Matthew is, but on every word that comes from God, to trade all of your soul for simple bread, for simple provision, leads to an emptiness and a vagueness to life. Jesus here is saying in some sense that to feed everyone does not give them life in the way in which God is aiming. God's repair isn't just feeding. The world might think that's all Christians are commanded to do. But God's repair is that we don't live on bread alone, but that on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The second temptation the devil led him up on a high place and showed him in all the instant the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I will give you all their, all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered as written, worship your God and serve him only. There's a lot going on in this one. First is that Jesus, or Luke seems to assume, and Matthew as he presents this temptation, is that all of politics belongs to the devil. Um, which I think Luke must have grown up in Illinois because we know, as five of our former governors are in jail, that um, this is the nature of politics. Um, it's unclear that, that Satan is, I mean, to say that Satan is telling the truth here is a bit of a, a stretch too, although it seems to be that as all of the political is made up of humans, all the political can be tilted towards Satan's ends. 
And if you but worship me, I will give you all of them. See, again, tempted to do good things in a weird way. Isn't this Christ's goal to be able to set up all the kingdoms on earth, to be able to worship um, and be guided into goodness and truth? Why wouldn't Christ take this on? First off, idolatry is in the way. Christ cannot worship Satan because that would be to go to idolatry. Worship your God alone and serve him. Um, the second is, I think that Christ's kingdom is not like the other kingdoms. You'll find this in the gospel, particularly with Pilate, where he says, this, my kingdom is not of this world. Christ, in his fullness of time, when he returns, his goal isn't just to be in charge of all the kingdoms, but to have that kingdom which comes from another place. This is a temptation in the modern world as we aim to make all of our little kingdoms small in our house, state, county, country, this, that, and the other, school district, into Christ's kingdom, or nationally, as we try to do it as well. But, and that's not to say we should completely withdraw from politics or whatever, but just to say that, like, that's the temptation, right? To then say, let's make this Christ's kingdom, and let's trade whatever we can to make it so. And this, for me, one of the things that convinced me to sort of embrace Christian nonviolence pacifism, whatever you want to say, was a thinker who said that being a Christian called to live peaceably in the world is not a strategy to live, rid the world of violence. It might actually make the world more violent, but it's a call to be faithful to the one who walks before us. Speaks of a Christianity of struggle in a lot of ways there, I think, but more um, what he names is that our... um, Utilitarian nature doesn't work for Christians. Karl Barth said that, that this rejection is a, tra- and a rejection of attractive realism. We do things because they work is not the way that the Christian speaks. We do things because we're called into them because of faithfulness to the story that God has given us. Going back to that beginning, if there's any truth in the invisible, that opens up options for us that previously weren't available to us. Knowing that, we're called to live in faithfulness. It's sort of the rejection of utilitarianism, I think, a lot in this temptation. Final temptation, and then we'll be done. Jesus then led um, him to Jerusalem, where this gospel begins, where Jesus is presented, and where it ends with his crucifixion. Um, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he commands his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike a foot against a stone. Jesus answered and said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. It's often, and maybe you've heard this, is that Jesus wins all of his temptations by quoting scripture, particularly the book of Deuteronomy. What happens here is what Satan quotes is also scripture. Not in the first two temptations, but in this one, Satan is quoting from the psalm that Jonathan read to start the service. Scripture is not as flat as I think sometimes the modern Christian wants to treat it. If it is flat, you would say, well, you know, Satan's got a point here. I throw myself off, and this is what God has commanded me to do, and it reveals what God has said. But there is wisdom and how we apply and follow the scriptures. You can take a lot of scriptures and compound them into weird and awkward things. 
I think we're living through a period of church history where some of it's been compounded into what would be called spiritual abuse in other ways. Jesus here in this temptation points out that there is a correctness to the ways in which we live with Scripture. Not everybody who can quote the Bible to you is doing you every, any, every, always doing you a favor. And particularly because Satan quotes the Bible to Jesus. Very weird, weird thing. But what Jesus resists here is this idea that Christianity is this freedom from struggle, this way of opting out of the world, this way of putting on a miraculous show. There's no just escaping the path that he's called to walk by using a miracle. And here's the hard news. There's no escaping the path that we're called to walk by just making God perform a miracle. We're called to walk into these things. Pick up your cross daily. Follow me. Jesus walks to a literal cross where he's put to death. Jesus answered again from the book of Deuteronomy, do not put your God to the test. Incidentally, that psalm um, that Satan quotes, you will tread on the lion and the cobra, you will champion the great lion and the serpent, is right where Satan cuts off as well, which is if you're familiar with the um, images that make up scripture, Satan is often considered the great serpent, and so he selectively reads scripture to say, throw yourself off and you will be saved, and what the thing in which Christ is going to be saved from or empowered to do is trampling on the head of that which deceives, slanders, and seeks to destroy. Um, Chapters and verse, uh, Satan's caught in using scripture selectively. Surprise, surprise as well. Um, And this brings us to the final part of the sermon, um, which is that final teaching is that um, Jesus when the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him uh, until an opportune time. That this temptation ends and the devil is not um, fully cast down or defeated, but waits for an opportune time. As we travel this gospel all the way up into the cross and resurrection, the opposition that Christ faced, literally face to face with the devil, ceases to happen. But he faces these temptations and these trials again through human actors. Um, particularly other people who are going to offer him other paths and ways. seems that Satan realized that face-to-face, hand-to-hand combat is not going to work with Jesus. So he goes and offers him other paths and other um, ways of turning from what God has called him into in the second half of this gospel that we're going to walk in here. So it is up for us to, to walk that path with him. Um, let us pray. God, in the next scene in the Gospel of Luke, your son will proclaim lease for the release for the captives. May we hear in Christ's standoff with the devil in these temptations our release from captivity to the spiritual powers of darkness, destruction, lies, and slander. And may we, belonging to God, being full of his spirit, be brought into our own paths in which we walk with your spirit. 
In time, we will face our own trials and temptations as well. But we can hear and be instructed from Christ the ways in which we are called to more. We are called to see more. And the ways in which this teaching and this story opens up options for us that might have been closed. We only live on material. It's a path that is now closed to us. Politics and power is all that there is. And anything to gain it is now closed to us. And looking for easy ways out of the ways in which we are called to walk in this world. Miracles to just move through life without touching the ground is also closed to us as well. May we be full of the Spirit and follow the pattern of your Son. Amen.